0: Coming up on Tech Nation, are we humans better off today, or maybe not? I speak with experimental cognitive scientist and Harvard professor, Steven Pinker, with his book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. He's got a lot of data. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft takes us beyond the hype about artificial intelligence in healthcare. Is AI really in play? And where might AI be used in the near future? All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: There was a time in the 1980s when the chip industry in Silicon Valley was in real trouble. It wasn't that the engineers had problems coming up with new ideas or better technology. They were certainly in the solid embrace of better, faster, cheaper. But cheaper can mean a lot of things. That mantra is meant for the consumer – And let's remember, this was also a time before the World Trade Organization was created. And a nation's respect for intellectual property was a matter of choice. What was actually happening was twofold. The American chip companies were designing new chips... Lickety split, but manufacturing them was not a perfect process. In fact, it involved a lot of labor, and there were many opportunities for larger wafers, which held a number of identical chips, to be damaged or improperly produced. So when a company released new chips, it was expected that they weren't all perfect, and any problem chips would be replaced, also lickety split. But that's not a great way to do business. A lot of effort was focused on the problems in the manufacturing lines so that problem chips could be traced back to a human or a machine problem. But that didn't help the fact that the chips had to get manufactured as quickly as possible because, well, the companies had to sell as many of the new chips as quickly as they could before the copycat chip companies jumped in. At the time, Japanese firms would get a set of any new chips and reverse-engineer them. Then they would set up their own chip manufacturing line and sell the chips on the open market far less expensively. If you don't already know it, designing and testing a new anything is almost always a far longer and expensive process than reverse-engineering. Therefore, the cost of innovation, the bright idea, if you will, was not absorbed by the chip copy company. And that's not all. The labor market of the Japanese was far less expensive. Their standards were meticulous, and they could afford to do 100% testing of the chips they put out. This all added up to a nightmare. The reverse-engineered chips were better because of the innovation that was in them, And their manufacturing process. The chips were faster because of the innovation as well, and they were much, much cheaper. The Silicon Valley Chip Company called the time between the new product announcement and the entry of Japanese chips into the market, the honeymoon period. Once the cheaper chips were there, the honeymoon was over. Silicon Valley folks knew that they couldn't keep this up forever, and there was talk that the American electronics industry was doomed. But then something amazing happened. More and more of the chip manufacturing process was taken over by technology. The chips produced had fewer and fewer problems, and the manufacturing process itself became cheaper. It put the Japanese pretty much out of business. And eventually, with the World Trade Organization, the intellectual property behind the chips themselves became protected globally. So why remind us of this part of history? Well, remember all the worry about outsourcing work from the United States to other countries where the labor is so much cheaper? The Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. has published a study. It seems that the rise of automation is not only changing the profile of the American workforce, it's replacing many of the outsourced jobs performed in emerging countries for much less. Deja vu all over again. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
1: Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.
0: From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, as a human race, are we better off or actually worse? You likely know Harvard professor Steven Pinker from such books as The Blank Slate and The Better Angels of Our Nature. He's here today with the data, and it's hard to argue with. Then on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft explores artificial intelligence today in health care and how you will see more of it in the future. Stephen Pinker is the John Stone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University and the author of Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. Well, Stephen, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you. I picked up your book and I couldn't believe it. Here we are, no matter what Anyone's politics are everybody seems to be holding their head in their hands and saying, "The world is in terrible shape, and you write this optimistic look at our world
2: well it's a it's a defense of progress. What will happen in the future mm-hmm. isn't completely determined by what happened in the past. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns, as the mutual funds say, but we really ought to appreciate the progress that we've made to know what we're in danger of losing and to know what what we should cherish what we should intensify going forward.
0: Well, you insist on giving us the facts. I count no fewer than seventy-five tables or charts, all definitively sourced, all simply presented. You might as well have named the book. What are all you people complaining about?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I do have. I, I do have some things that we could complain about or, or worry about. But, uh, but yeah, but we should also uh, appreciate what we've accomplished. Uh, we're, we're living longer. More of us are going to school. Uh, we're not dropping of infectious diseases. Uh, We are better entertained. We're better educated. We're richer. And by we, I don't just mean Americans and Europeans. I mean we citizens of the world. Not everyone, but many, many more uh, than just even in the recent past.
0: You're writing about Enlightenment now, and it refers back to a period of history called the Enlightenment. Take us back there.
2: So this is the the period usually dated to the second half of the 18th century that had an explosion of ideas on both sides of the Atlantic that involved the primacy of reasoning. We shouldn't accept dogma and authority and tradition and revelation and faith, but we should uh, try to figure things out, figure out how the world works. That also means science because science is the application of reason to understanding the world. Based on the conviction that the world is intelligible, we can figure out how it works by formulating possible hypotheses and testing them against reality. Humanism, the uh, idea that the prime moral goal for all of us should be to enhance human flourishing, to to make people better off. Now, I mean, that may sound so obvious that it's not worth giving a a name to. But there are alternatives, such as that uh, the prime moral purpose is to obey God's commandments, to achieve a... uh, a good fate after you live in in an afterlife, to glorify the nation or the race or the class or the faith, uh, to achieve feats of artistic and uh, military greatness. Uh, So the idea that we should make as many people as possible live long, healthy, happy lives is is not as obvious as it sounds uh, to us today. Uh, And finally, the Enlightenment thinkers believed that progress was possible, that they didn't try to hark back to a golden age. They, they didn't uh, look ahead to some messianic utopia, but rather that if we apply our reason and science to improving the human condition, then bit by bit we can succeed.
0: Now, you list these as ideals. What does that mean?
2: Well, they, are, they combine factual beliefs, namely that the world is intelligible, with goals or moral beliefs that we ought to enhance uh, human flourishing. And they're ideals in the sense that they are things that we, we ought to strive for. We should be as rational as possible. Uh, we should try to understand the world. We should uh, enhance human flourishing.
0: And, of course, you were listing sort of the counter-enlightenments, you know, which you might call nationalism.
2: That That's one, Yep. Yeah.
0: Totally it's it's not trying to make everybody happy it's us us against the world.
2: Yes, uh, that the world consists of a bunch of uh, nation states which are like tribes in, in competition for glory and preeminence and, and they, they should compete and the better one does, the worse another one will do but that's the way it ought to be that's that's kind of the nationalists view of, uh, of the, the planet. Uh, It has received some recent uh, uh, endorsement from our our president and his advisors, but it is a distinct idea, and it's not the same as the idea that nations are kind of conveniences, constructions. They're ways that people can lead better lives. And uh, that is very much an Enlightenment ideal, that the nation is simply a... um, or especially the government, is just a means for people to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And indeed, it is stipulated in so many words in the Declaration of Independence. What comes first? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In order to achieve them, uh, nations are set up. That's very different from the idea that there are nations and the, the individuals are, are making it up are just little bits and pieces. They're like the cells of a body, uh, but that w- what really counts is the uh, is the nation. So that's an example of a clash between enlightenment and counter enlightenment ideals. The counter enlightenment rose up in reaction to the enlightenment in the nineteenth century, and it extolled virtues like the nation or the race tied to a plot of land connected via a bloodline defined by a uh, culture and language. Uh, The Romantic movement was a kind of counter-Enlightenment movement. It it claimed that the individual is a fiction, that really we're we're part of a seamless whole that involves the land that we live on and the culture that we're part of and the the people that we're a a constituent uh, of. Uh, Of course, uh, religious belief was uh, very much a counter-enlightenment ideal, that we should get our morality from uh, Scripture— that we should accept scripture's view of the nature of the world and the universe and that the uh, what we should look to is a going to heaven af- after we die that is, this life is kind of you know disposable death is a rite of passage but what really counts is how we spend eternity and that also goes against the counter enlightenment and enf- uh, emphasis on human beings in this world living the lives they live
0: and of course there's the ever popular we are in a decline civilization is
2: collapsing very much that's right so progress was an enlightenment ideal that again is not it is not necessarily a crowd pleaser and uh, <laughs> so <laughs> since the since the 19th century there have been there's been thinker after thinker and artist after artist and politician after politician saying we are decadent we are degenerate we're teetering on the brink any day now uh, our civilization is going to collapse they kind of divide into the ones that kind of wring their hands and fret about how sad this is, but it's nothing we can do to prevent it. And those who kind of welcome it. Like, we're, uh, life is so decadent uh, and and meaningless and soulless and consumerist. And it's about time that it collapses. And we don't and know. And it should. Yeah. And anything <laughs> that will, anything is better than what we have now. Whatever will rise out of the ashes has got to be an improvement on the sick society that we're living in now.
0: And then we have remembering that the scientific revolution predated or or fed into the Age of Enlightenment. We have, instead of the embrace of science, we have the condemnation of science.
2: Yes, that uh, science, e- even in universities, is often blamed for Ills that are as old as civilization—slavery and racism and uh, imperialism and colonialism—even uh, though these took place centuries, uh, uh, millennia before the scientific Boy, revolution. Boy, can we
0: humans keep a grudge? <laughs> <laughs>
2: right, but that's a very popular view among um, uh, many in the many academics, many intellectuals, especially those kind of a more on the. The literary side of what is sometimes called the two cultures, a term that goes back to C.P. Snow, where uh, one culture was science, the other culture, literary intellectuals and cultural critics. And there is a kind of a sneering among many of the culture of literary intellectuals that that, uh, science is crass and evil and has, is responsible for the world wars and for, for racism. I argue that this is completely anachronistic, but it, it is a popular view. And then, of course, on the right, there is often a contempt for science when it clashes with cherished values like divine creation 5,000 years ago, or the idea that uh, our hope lies in uh, faith and trust in God and uh, prayer. For example, there is a widespread belief among uh, the, the Christian evangelical right that um, we don't really, ha- we shouldn't really try to do something about climate change because God wouldn't let uh, anything bad happen uh, in, the, in the long run. That's a surprisingly common belief.
0: <laughs> That's good. Yeah, it's scary. I mean, if you don't, yeah, if, if, if you, if you don't might, have so, so I much might space, have to sign on to that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> might s- s- sleep better, but one can say it would be a, a kind of a... Yeah,
0: yeah on a desperate day. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Steven Pinker, the Johnstone Family Professor of Psychology at Harvard University. He's an experimental cognitive scientist and a prolific author, in such topics areas as language, mind, and human nature. You know him from such books as The Blank Slate and The Better Angels of Our Nature. He's here today with Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And let's talk about progress. I was looking at one of your figures, Tone of the News, 1945 to 2010, of the New York Times, and it was talking about pessimism. How does pessimism relate to progress?
2: Yeah, uh, uh, progress takes place despite all the pessimists. But the graph that you were just alluding to comes from an analysis by a data scientist named Kalev Litaru, who used a technique called sentiment sentiment mining, which uh, uh, sentiment mapping, which tallied up just the number of positive words and negative words in a huge sample of news articles, starting from the forties. Uh, one sample was all of the uh, uh, content of the New York Times. Another was a sample of news sources all over the world. And both of them went down, down, down. Uh, even though the 1940s, uh, we were, the, the world had just come out of, a, uh, of the, the worst war in history. There was widespread poverty and hunger. There was racial discrimination codified in the law in the, in the United States. The uh, half of Europe was behind the Iron Curtain. There were horrific wars in the, the partition of India. The uh, Korean War was was about to come. The Chinese Civil War, a, a grotesquely destructive war. Uh, but they were much cheerier than, than we are now, <laughs> with a fraction of the number of wars, with the, the world much richer, extreme poverty uh, world, worldwide at its lowest point ever. And now is when the, the papers are glum and morose.
0: Exactly. And this only went to 2010 when i think about the just how people talk today and how the media in all its varieties are Everyone is unhappy. (laughs) They just happen to severely disagree. (laughs) As to
2: what they should be unhappy about. Well, here's an interesting uh, phenomenon, though. There is a phenomenon called the optimism gap, which pollsters have have documented for quite a while, which is that it's not that people are that unhappy, but they're really angry about the the society because they think everyone else is unhappy for, for reasons that they are upset about. So if you ask people how good is your kid's school? They say, oh, it's, it's not bad. You say, how good are the nation's schools? Oh, they're terrible. <laughs> uh, how safe is your neighborhood? Oh, it's pretty safe. How safe is your city? Oh, it's, it's a jungle. Uh, and how hap- even how happy are you? How happy uh, is the average person? And uh, people underestimate the happiness of the country by 30 or 40 percentage points. So everyone thinks that everyone else is miserable. And a lot of voting behavior isn't driven so much by personal uh, interests, you, there's always the puzzle. How come people don't vote their pocketbooks? Why do, why do poor people vote for, or working class people vote for tax cuts for the rich? The thing is that a lot of vote, voting really isn't, it can't be for your personal interest because your vote really, you know, doesn't make a difference, um, you know, frankly.
0: One at uh, a time. <laughs> wh-
2: yeah, one, one vote, exactly. One at a time, it doesn't make a difference. So for an individual person, they're really not voting their pocketbook or anything else. They're, they're ex- expressing themselves. They're uh, expressing their theory as to which way the world is going, their, which tribe they belong to, which candidate seems to represent what they value in life. Uh, but th- a lot of what we call the, you know, the anger of the voter isn't so necessarily anger at their personal situation, but rather their assessment of which way the country is going.
0: Well, I, I kept reading these 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 charts, and I'm reading the text, and uh, I was I was seeing how challenging it was in some instances because so many times the data was clear. I mean, cost of air travel down, way down, minuscule. You can fly anywhere. People do all the time. There,
2: there used to be this this term called the jet set for rich people because they were the <laughs> only ones who could afford to fly by jet. Now it's it's, it's an anachronistic term. Uh, global well-being,
0: up. Measure, measure, measure. measure. We could see that going up. But then you've got some things that I'm trying to figure out. The number of people living in extreme poverty, seriously down. uh, If you look at the percentage, but it's still sort of the same number of people because the
2: the great, we've got such an expansion of the population. So interestingly, that that isn't exactly true. That astonishingly, not only is the rate of extreme poverty down, but the number of people in extreme poverty is uh, has gone down, even as the world's population has uh, increased. So it's even gone so down. So even the, even the absolute numbers have gone down, uh, which is amazing considering how much the population has grown. But that gives you. A sense as to how dramatic the decline of extreme poverty has been that even with a burgeoning population, fewer heads fewer bodies are are uh, in extreme poverty so now that of course this isn't does doesn't mean that uh, we can relax and that we shouldn't be concerned about uh, extreme poverty because if say ten percent of the world lives in extreme poverty that's seven hundred million people that's a, a lot of misery uh, and that's just Another way of saying, making the same point: ten The global poverty rate is ten percent. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, Seven hundred million people uh, are in extreme poverty. That's uh, not a, okay. A, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's certainly not okay. And in fact, the United Nations has set as one of its sustainable development goals eliminating extreme poverty everywhere by uh, twenty thirty. Now, that's a very op, quite an optimistic goal. It's only a dozen years from now. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be alive to see it. Now, it probably won't meet that goal that is so ambitious, Um, but it might come close. I mean, the last pockets of uh, extreme poverty are going to be the hardest to uh, alleviate. Um, And so it may be a little bit too optimistic. On the other hand, the Millennium Development Goals, um, which were the predecessor of the Sustainable Development Goals, a lot of those uh, targets were met ahead of schedule, including the reduction of extreme poverty.
0: Only problems get solved, and it ain't a problem until you say it's a problem.
2: Well, that's right, yes. And, I mean, you need to see it's a problem, and you also have, the, have to have the confidence that uh, problems are solvable.
0: It does point out to me how difficult it is, the challenge it is, to get the data in a way that you can see it. Um it's you don't just pick out. Yeah, I could tell you just didn't pick out fi- figures and throw them up. You know, it's yeah. Like, what am I really communicating here, and for the reader, what am I seeing? And it's 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 a tremendous challenge to try to get the right perspective on what it is you're looking
2: at. Indeed. And uh, it was a lesson that I learned in writing a previous book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. And I knew that people would be so incredulous at the claim that violence had declined that only by plotting graphs uh, would they, and so they could see it with their own eyes would readers believe it. So, for example, a uh, graph on uh, per capita rate of death in wars since uh, 1945 and it's it's a bit of a roller coaster there's some ups and downs, but the overall impression is that it's 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 down 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 um, and it's uh uh from you know maybe about twenty two per hundred thousand per year in uh, around the time of the Korean War down to one point two uh, just before just when the book was published, which was just before the Syrian civil war uh nicked it up uh, a bit and uh you could, in in Enlightenment Now, I update a number of the graphs from the Better Angels of Our Nature. And there's no question that there's a, a, an upward uh, blip uh, since Better Angels was published, representing the uh, the horrific Syrian civil war. But um, it doesn't, you, looking at the graph, you can see that even though it's a turn in the wrong direction, it doesn't erase the progress that we've enjoyed. We're still not anywhere near the levels that we were in the 1980s when there was the Uh, Iran-Iraq War, most people have forgotten about that, Uh, in the 60s and 70s with the Vietnam War, in the early 50s and late 40s with the uh, Korean War and the Chinese Civil War. So seeing the graph gives you a kind of appreciation that you can't get from a verbal description, and it's because we're primates, we're visual creatures.
0: And then there are deaths from terrorism.
2: Yes, yeah, so that's uh, that's an, an, another um, surprise when you look at it quantitatively, because terrorism commands our attention, gets saturation news coverage, and of course, that's the whole point of terrorism. That's what we call it: terrorism. It is, is a, a device designed to generate terror, uh, but it a- actually is not a major factor in in, in uh, violence. That the uh, number of people who are killed in just ordinary barroom homicides or you know, road rage, domestic violence, dwarfs the number of deaths from terrorism or from rampage shooters. And if you care about a person's chance of being of dying at, at the hands of another human being, what well, you really should look at is homicide, not terrorism. Uh, and it's only by looking at numbers that you can appreciate how minor a phenomenon terrorism is, other than in whipping up uh, emotions. And even with... Um, uh, even when you plot the rate of terrorism over time uh, you see that actually uh, except for 9/11 which just jumps out of the graph uh, the, the worst terrorist act in, his, in history and as we remember at the time this was supposed to be a harbinger of an age of terrorism there's supposed to be there were going to be weekly attacks on the scale of 9/11 that didn't happen. But if you set aside 9-11, then uh, actually the world probably has less terrorism now than it did in the uh, uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, the heyday of um, radical Marxist groups and secessionist groups uh, and the, uh, the the Basque terrorists, the Irish Republicans, the, the Baader-Meinhof gang. Um, and so Western Europe in particular had much higher rates of terrorism there.
0: 60s, than. 70s, 80s, we didn't have the internet we didn't have constant updates from our phones. We didn't – we had three – in the U.S., we had three major networks plus maybe a local one. You had to get there at 6 o'clock at night if you wanted to see the evening news. You picked up the morning paper. You had a 24-hour – a solid 24-hour news cycle, if not more. We didn't know about most of the things that were going on.
2: Well, that, I think that's right. Yes, we we didn't. I mean, The um, Vietnam War – was uh, the, the, said to be the first war brought into Americans' living rooms. So there was some awareness, more awareness of the Vietnam War than other wars uh, while they were unfolding, where the, a lot of the, the, the uh, battleground uh, f- photography was only released after the war. Often wartime censors would not allow um, grisly pictures to be published as the war was going on because it would demoralize the country. So Vietnam had, had more of it, now we st- have still more, even though we have fewer wars and less destructive wars, we see more of them.
0: I'm speaking with Harvard professor Steven Pinker about Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about artificial intelligence in healthcare. care. It's here, it's real, and it's not going away. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Harvard professor Steven Pinker about his book Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. Well, it's this perception of data that uh, I really want to call attention to. You don't talk about this in the book, but I happened to look at it the other day. And it's an analysis of Trump's Tweets since he was inaugurated. How many are on what subject? How many? Well, what happens is that you, you, you read or you hear or you see one that's a particularly of, of some note um, at any one time, but you don't have a sense for how many there are, and how they're grouped together, mm. and how they begin to make sort of a sense or they they have a pattern, and and it's like wow, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't know. I didn't know how many he wrote on this topic versus that topic. And I think that's another thing that comes through here. You've got to collectively take data over time to understand what it is you're looking at.
2: Yeah, very much. We're we're, uh, awash in data, and and more of it is being generated and collated. But we do need ways of digesting it, and and, um, that's going to mean creative uh, visualizations. And there's a, a new... Um, kind of an art form almost. I mean, we're halfway between art and science of how do you get people to appreciate multidimensional dynamic data given our, 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 our puny powers of uh, quantitative <laughs> thinking. And uh, I'm, I have great admiration for the the, the, the the scientists, the data scientists, the graphic designers, the artists who come up with clever ways of displaying data in ways that, that can be understood. I mean, a famous example is from the, the late Swedish doctor, Hans Rosling, who became a, yes. a TED Talk star. Um, Among among other things, he he swallowed a sword, he uh, emerged from a washing machine to argue that the washing machine is the most important invention of the Industrial Revolution for liberating women and giving us back a day of our lives. But among the things that he did, and and he was quite the showman, but he, he devised a way of showing human progress. Dynamically, uh, in a, a, a bubble graph that uh, probably a number of listeners have either seen in TED talks or on websites, where um, the the two axes are uh, lifespan and wealth GDP per capita. The um, uh, each dot is a country. The size of the dot represents the population of the country. They're color coded as to which continent they appear in, and what and they're animated. So at first, all of the the dots the bubbles are are crowded into the lower left hand uh corner this is in say eighteen uh twenty basically the whole world was sick and poor and, and died died young. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then you not see, a good time <laughs> not a really not a good time forget the gold forget the good old days yeah. forget the golden age uh, people dropped like flies and they were poor uh and then you see. Uh, The bubbles for for Britain, for the Netherlands, for the United States, kind of floating out from that cluster packed into the lower left-hand corner, meaning that they were getting uh, richer and they were living longer, floating up along the diagonal to the upper right. And then a gap opens up. So there are a few fortunate countries and most of the world living in squalor. But then in the last... uh, The last minute of the animation, corresponding to the last few decades, you see uh, a mass of countries escaping that lower left-hand corner, slithering up the diagonal, meaning that their people were uh, living longer and uh, richer. And then you see sub-Saharan Africa, the world's poorest region, those countries starting to move up the diagonal. So it's an example of uh, human history involving uh, thousands of data points um, rendered as a, almost like a uh, not quite a cartoon but certainly a uh, beautiful and informative visual display
0: what I like about the Hans Rosling charts is that he often includes where does technology play a part, where does science play a part you know because he was very interested in public health, that was part of one of his uh, his fields and it 's like when science could come along and Understand what caused some of these diseases, and technology could then be brought about, so you could you could actually treat it. Once they exist, whole populations can catch up really fast.
2: Yes, because um, ideas are—they um, don't weigh anything; they don't cost anything to to spread. They're information, they're bits, and they can be duplicated without loss. I mean, it's the like the old saying: you teach a man to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. Um, information can be duplicated without loss i mean that 's why I mean that has some um, consequences that we don 't know how to deal with, like you know, piracy and uh, you know, uh, uh, the damage done to the recording industry and the news industry as people get all these things um, you know, cheap or free, uh, and the business model can't can 't keep up with it but on the other hand, it does have the advantage that if you discover a way of sanitizing water or increasing crop yields. Uh, you can share it, and it doesn 't cost anything to share it and people can be uh an order of magnitude better off
0: and that 's a definition of progress for the whole human race once we figure it out at one level, it can spread throughout all humanity
2: exactly and that that is a key enlightenment idea that knowledge is the um is the is the source of human improvement, and it can be uh because of this uncanny ability to be duplicated. Thomas Jefferson had a wonderful analogy. He said that when I um, share an idea with someone, um, I uh, suffer no loss in the same way as that when I light someone's uh, candle with mine, uh, I, I, I can uh, light his without mine going out.
0: Now we get to the big chart. Populist support across generations. You've got three lines. Brexit, Trump... And European populist parties describe this chart to us. I'm not quite sure I, I understood it when I looked
2: at it. Well, it just it, so this is not a chart that plots uh, anything over time. It plots it over age. So, what percentage of say, millennials, people in, you know, and people in their twenties, voted for Trump? What percentage of baby boomers? What percentage of the Silent Generation, the people uh, born um, before World War II? Uh, and, and everything in between? And all three graphs show a huge fall-off. Basically, the older you are, the more populism appeals to you. Uh, at least that was true. Uh, those aren't data from last year, but uh, they were data from the year before last, 2016. And uh, they show that uh, populism is, is something of an old man's movement. And what is populism? So this is the, um, uh, I, I would say, a counter-enlightenment movement that we see in in Trump. We see in, to some extent, in Brexit. We see in the... Um, Parties that have uh, gained power in some Eastern European countries like um, Poland and Hungary and that have made inroads in others that uh, seek kind of direct power in the uh, hands of a particular people, a particular, often a particular ethnic group. In practice, often the kind of traditional white population of the country, um, but with their uh, interests uh, embodied in a charismatic leader who, who uh, just symbolizes their inherent wisdom and virtue this the movement tends to be distrustful to contemptuous of uh, expertise uh, it's it tends, it tends to be nationalist that is hostile to organizations of international cooperation the European Union being the, the uh, prime example um, opposed to immigration because it contaminates the uh, the, the nation conceived of as a, a Uh, Homeland for an ethnic group, often um, not particularly um, partial to democracy because it has all of these uh, burdensome rules and regulations and fiduciary duties and uh, a deep state and an administrative state. That since the people is inherently good, if you have a leader that embodies the virtue of the uh, of, of the people. Uh, why saddle him with all of these, uh, these these annoying regulations, and so the idea of democracy being a government of laws and not men uh, and built in constraints on the power of an executive that ch- checks and balances um, that doesn 't particularly resonate strongly with uh, with populism.
0: Now we get to part three. Yeah. It's like, wow, how long is this book? Well it's not that long,
2: but they share a lot in it. Shorter than a typical president's biography. Oh <laughs> as an
0: example. As an example. You go back to reason, science, humanism, but we're talking about the progress that we need to go from here. Let's talk let's let's just wrap up with that perspective, if you will.
2: Yes, yeah, so I have a, a chapter piece defending what I uh, consider to be the three main ideals of the Enlightenment, the ones that make progress possible. I have a chapter on reason, which uh, defends the primacy of reason against a um, an argument that actually sometimes comes from my own field, cognitive psychology. Uh, since cognitive psychologists have shown all the ways in which people can be irrational, uh we we generalize from stereotypes and from examples we use our own experience as a source of uh of information about the world just what's the first thing you can think of well that's what that must, must be what's happening we uh we're overconfident about our own wisdom our own knowledge uh we uh selectively prosecute uh, our own um favored causes by uh, slurping up data that supports them and blowing off data that goes against them so we don't take an unbiased reading of the uh, evidence but act more like lawyers to try to advance our cause and try to win arguments. So, and these are all true. They've been documented over and over <laughs> yes. again. They, they replicate. Uh, but it uh, it does not mean that, uh, first of all, it doesn't mean that the Enlightenment thinkers would be surprised by any of these findings. The Contrary to A totally incorrect um, belief about the Enlightenment. They didn't think we were all Mr. Spock, that we were all perfectly rational, or that the society depended on everyone acting rationally. Quite the contrary. I mean, a lot of the mechanisms of democracy were designed to achieve a a rational outcome, despite the fact that all the people who are taking part in it aren't so rational. Uh, Likewise, science. The whole point of science is um, you don't get to impose your authority. Uh, you, no, no one is going to believe you just because you're a big shot, but everything has to be debated, peer-reviewed, empirically tested, uh, and that the main impediment to scientific progress is the fact that we fool ourselves. We, we scientists fool ourselves. And so the whole rules of the game of science are designed to uh, stop us from from fooling ourselves. Um, and the the idea that the, the, the bigger idea is not that people are rational, but people obviously must be capable of rationality. Otherwise, we could never argue about whether they're rational or not because we wouldn't know what rationality is. The fact that we're even having this discussion means that we must have some idea of what's rational in order to say, well, humans aren't it. So some of us, some of the time, clearly can uh, pinpoint what's rational, and we do it in systems of logic and evidence. And uh, And the point is the, the reason that we extol reason is not to um to, to to praise human beings uh, quite the contrary but rather to set up institutions and norms and rules of the game that make us collectively more rational than any of us are individually and the the, kind of, the proof that we uh that, that 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 um reason must be the uh, ultimate uh, guide is that if you make an argument that reason shouldn't be the ultimate guide, well, why should we believe that line of argument unless it's reasonable? And if it is reasonable, (laughs) then it's saying that uh, it's defeating itself because it's falling right back on reason. So I have a chapter on science, and again, some people say, well, why would would anyone need a a defense of science? Isn't science uh, ascendant? But in fact, uh, as I briefly mentioned before, science gets really kind of trashed in a lot of university uh, uh, departments and courses. It's blamed for racism, and I argue that that's uh, anachronistic, that in fact the huge increase in... um, nationalism and racism in Europe that eventually led to fascism and Nazism really came from mythology, from philology, from linguistics, from cockamamie theories that a great race of manly men spilled out of uh, an ancestral homeland thousands of years ago, the Aryans or the Indo-Europeans, uh, and turned into the, 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 the Homeric Greeks and the um, um, and the Goths and the uh the indian um uh, invaders of of the subcontinent uh and that the persians and that everything has been going downhill since they interbred with the inferior peoples that they uh, that they conquered now i mean this is you, know, you know, utter nonsense, but it was an amazingly popular view among a whole swath of intellectuals, philosophers, and the idea that we should blame science for this. uh, I mean, certainly scientists were to blame. They got caught up in in this uh, zeitgeist. But it was, uh, I argue, not a, uh, a scientific theory that gave rise to these ideas. Uh, and then a chapter on humanism. Uh, would, again, you might say, does it really need a defense? And the answer is, it does, because there, there are religious alternatives, as we discussed earlier. And then there's a here a, a alternative that the ultimate good is to promote the the great uh, the great man, the, the the ubermensch, the Superman, the fa- the brilliant artist, the uh, military conqueror, and that the mass of people count for nothing. That it's greatness that we should think about.
0: Well, Stephen, it is always a pleasure. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation.
2: I'd love to be back.
0: My guest today is Harvard professor Steven Pinker. The book is Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. It's published by Viking. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. It seems that the term artificial intelligence, or as it's referred to, AI, has been over-promised and overhyped for years, and yet we're seeing changes as a result of AI all around us. I thought I might ask Tech Nation Health chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft about areas in healthcare where that might be true, starting with radiology. I mean, who hasn't had an X-ray?
3: I always like to say that you know we're moving from this sort of hype cycle, hype cycle of artificial intelligence, AI, to IA, intelligence augmentation and particularly in radiology, which is one of those fields full of data and more and more data, you know, more scans done, the resolution of CT scans and MRIs is, is going up exponentially. That's to the point where no radiologist can look at every single film, every single slice. So one of the exciting areas where machine learning, big data, AI, have come together in the last few years is to now take our now digitized X-rays. You know, back when I trained, we still took our... X-rays that were sort of printed on uh, film paper, put them on the light box. We looked at them and said, oh, that little dot shadow there, that might be a pneumonia. Well, now we can digitize those. You can I can look at radiology films from almost any hospital on my smartphone and apply the lens of machine learning, AI, and big data to those X-rays. And it could be an X-ray, it could be a CT scan, an ultrasound. So here we are in a, speaking right now in November 2017. Just this last week was the RSNA conference, a big convergence of radiologists from around the world, one of the big issues is where is this taking radiology? Because today there are already companies like Analytic here in San Francisco, Zebra Biomedical out of uh, Israel, a company called um, Arteris that spun out of Stanford, where they're taking the scans from CT scans, MRIs and and beyond, and now can say, that patient looks like they have pneumonia. That patient looks like they have a, a nodule that is probably benign or is cancerous. And this threatens to some degree how radiologists will practice. Frankly, we probably need them not to be replaced, but to be augmented by these skills. So they're not looking at every standard chest X-ray for screening, but can spend their time and attention on the scans that have the most need for higher intellectual uh, investment and collaboration. Um, But we're rapidly getting to the point, again, where almost every X-ray will probably have a pre-read, just like some mammograms are being done today. Every CT scan and every element will not do the entire reading but highlight the elements that need to be paid attention to and as we can start to crowdsource this data what machine learning and AI is good is saying this is the characteristics of a dangerous nodule versus a non-dangerous one and uh, i think it's going to continue to explode to the point where um, we are going to be able to have lower cost radiology um, better imaging data and get that faster because if i'm in the emergency room or in the clinic i'm still often waiting sometimes a day or more to get that Read back, and sometimes it's super time critical,
0: well, I have to tell people all the time and they say, "Well, how could a computer be how do I trust this It's going to be you know that a human is so much better at this, and I say, Well, you see sixteen frames a second and you think the image is moving
3: <laughs> you know? right, and humans are they get We're limited. tired limited. <laughs> They're limited. We get tired. We have biases. There was, uh, you know, a recent publication out of Stanford. Andrew Andrew Ing's group is a pretty well-known AI researcher. Is now applying his lens to to healthcare, where they've now trained uh, their systems to look at chest X-rays, and it was beating, in terms of a competition they sort of set up in their publication, very experienced regular chest radiologists. Um, so we we want hopefully our doctor or our AI. Uh, enhanced clinicians to be always up to speed on the latest research publications, data that can come not just from an academic center like Stanford, UCSF, but from around the world. Um, and so what does a radiologist, a pathologist, a dermatologist do? They do often pattern recognition. And what does machine learning and AI do well is pattern recognition and keep improving over time. And can just like we saw with the famous game Go, which Google's Deep Mind Project uh, learned to beat the grand champion in Go, their next version of Go, without even playing any games, taught itself to beat the prior version of Go. So as we sort of add these elements in, we're going to see dramatic impacts in things like dermatology, radiology, pathology. And again, not to have your doctor replaced by an AI robot, but to have them upskilled, um, and to have better access to true real-time information from around the world.
0: Good point. This isn't a competition. This is a an augmentation on, on one side, and when it gets better at many things, it actually frequently trains the doctor. The doctor gets better saying, oh... Oh, I now see something more. Now you're pointing this out. Now you're learning more. And so the, the, it's a, it's a it's a friendly team between the doctor and the better technology. It's not one subsuming the other. Right.
3: And a team eventually with the, each of us as individual consumers and patients that, you know, already today my smartwatch can look at my heart rate and if it's not regular or if it's higher than it should be and I'm not moving, it can go, hey, Daniel, maybe something's going on and diagnose something like atrial fibrillation an irregular regular heart rhythm. Um, that's a little form of simple AI. In the future, that's going to get more synthesized from our connected homes, our Internet of Things, where our connected mattress will track our resting heart rate and, and sleep, where our Amazon Echoes might be listening to our voice and seeing changes. And again, hopefully that teams with our clinicians and healthcare systems leveraging the sort of machine learning AI lever to pick up things early rather than late.
0: Well, we all have skin. What about artificial intelligence and dermatology? I mean, is it any more than just taking a picture of a spot on our on our hand?
3: I think dermatology is probably the, the most obvious spot for AI machine learning to play a role in it. It, it is already happening. Uh, today, there are several apps you can download and take a picture of a funny spot on your skin and send it to a real dermatologist. We'll send you a preliminary diagnosis. Is that a melanoma or a mole? But several groups have now published and even demonstrated at big dermatology conferences where they put the, the pictures on the screen that they can beat out more than 80% of the experienced dermatologists there in identifying with that lesion is. And so you
0: hope it goes through a computer analysis on the way to the dermatologist reviewing your your Right, right or picture. in some cases
3: may replace the common screening that a dermatologist may do. Your primary care doctor may see a funny rash, try to get you to see a, a dermatologist, but it's a two-month wait there are systems like kaiser permanente that have a whole e derm system where they can take a picture send it asynchronously and it can be looked at by a dermatologist increasingly that will be done by apps and machine learning again we need to align the incentives and the regulatory process how do you regulate an app that you may have that might screen you for cancer uh, how do you know it's accurate or not and sensitive and specific because we don't want a bunch of false positives going out there at the same time we want to be able to identify folks who might have missed that skin lesion have that positive screen, and then go in and see the dermatologist who can do the bi- biopsy. So this shouldn't necessarily, again, replace dermatologists, but hopefully bring them to the clinic, the folks who really need to get seen, hopefully sooner, and that will, will save lives and dollars.
0: And now, at the end of the day, we all leave this earth. What about pathology?
3: Pathology is still, I wouldn't say in the dark ages, but still in the glass slide ages, where you know, let's see if um, something biopsied from in your body, or on your skin, gets sliced and diced, put it on the, sc- on the scope, and someone looks down the glass tubes and at the microscope and says, well, this looks normal or some stage of a disease based on their experience. Um, now we're seeing the advent of digital pathology where even there are some robotic um, devices that will slice up the tumor, image them, 3D reconstruct them, and then can apply that same lens we could apply to, dermatolo- to dermatology and radiology. To pathology slides, uh, pathology elements, and uh, is going to give us a lot more insight into disease and how to diagnose this because, frankly, there's still a lot of misdiagnosis going on. You may have the world's best pathologist at one academic center in the U.S. or some other location in the world. Now you can hopefully apply that mindset of the best, dermatolo- best pathologist from around the world and in- an increasingly global data set to compare your pathology with others and make the most accurate, timely diagnosis. diagnosis.
0: And once your pathology is digitized, it can be sent to any number of people who can look at it and any number of programs that can look at it.
3: It could be a computer looking at it, it could be the power of the crowd. We've seen now we've seen examples now in, in public health or global health with malaria. So the way you diagnose malaria, someone comes in with some fevers, they may have a been a part of the world with malaria carried carried by mosquitoes. You take a blood smear, you look on that blood smear in the microscope for these little spirochetes that are uh, indicative of different forms of malaria. That's done visually today. Now you don't maybe have anyone in the clinic there to do it. You can upload it to the cloud and a volunteer mom in Ohio can be screening those and, and, and scoring them. And it won't be just one person, Maybe 10 of them. And when the score is high enough, it's going to give you a positive answer. And as we start to learn... What those things look like, Um, just like other machine learnings have been trained by humans, we're going to train with the power of the crowd and both the lay public and experienced pathologists, um, radiologists, dermatologists, uh, how to identify those signals. And the machine learning will continue to improve with the help, the collaboration of the human side of the equation. And there's there's fear around this, right? You know, Elon Musk and others have raised the specter of what happens when the AIs take over. Uh, there's a lot of, again, stress in the medical community. What's the role of the, of the diagnostician, of the clinician? Uh, I think we still definitely need to pay attention to the, the human side of the equation. It's not just having the AI diagnosis or therapy calculated. How do you interact with your with your nurse, your doctor, that human touch is therapeutic in itself. We've seen studies now with stents in cardiac disease, with sham stents being placed, where the outcomes were the same. They still went through a procedure. They thought they may have gotten it. The outcomes were the same. We're, we're going to learn what what is that real placebo effect, maybe even how to leverage that and understand that the human contact part, whether it's human empathy directly or digital empathy through an app or SMS or FaceTime, that can be part of this equation. So I want to uh, again, emphasize that we shouldn't sort of be afraid that AI will take over and replace doctors, nurses, etc. But can be a, a, an important layer, and it can hopefully give us more time for the human part—the communication, the handholding, the decision making, the the empathy—that can be an incredibly important part of the of the health and wellness side as well as the patient journey when you're diagnosed with an acute or chronic condition.
0: And these artificial intelligence computer programs didn't come out of the air. They didn't drop from the sky. Richard Feynman, the physicist, is famous for saying, I cannot build what I don't understand. It's a reflection of what humans understand that are in these programs.
3: At the beginning, but as I understand it today with some of the work from Google DeepMind and others... They're starting to solve things and create things that they don't understand where the elements come from. We also don't want to just be assigning big data sets. How do we accelerate our ability to think and reason, right? It's, it's one issue if you have a simple puzzle you can do with two or three elements. But when you go to the end of the power of nine or ten or beyond, uh, sometimes the way these solutions get uh, solved won't be something that we can just back calculate in our human sense.
0: Well. I, I really look forward to the day when the patient comes into you and says, instead of, hey, doc, do you have some medicine for me? It's, hey, doc, do you have a placebo for me? Because that'd be really great. <laughs>
3: and that placebo might need to be tuned to you. I mean, how we respond to stress or uh, the, the, the pill, uh, whether it's the red pill or the, or the green one, uh, may be very dependent on you and understanding your psychology. And so all these things are going to play in a an important role in today and the future of health and medicine it's not just AI or big data or omics it's this convergence and the super convergence it's going to give us the potential to really shift things across the healthcare continuum
0: thanks for coming in Daniel thank you Moira Dr. Daniel Kraft is Chief Correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine more information is available at ExponentialMedicine.com for Tech Nation Health I'm Moira Gunn
1: TechNation Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Landcorn.